Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. You'll find it in New York City. You'll find it in your closet. You'll find it downtown. You'll find it at your neighbor's house. You'll find it at the club. And you'll find it on TV. I'm talking about drag. An art form which has garnered massive popularity over the last decade, but has roots older than modern religion. Drag has been traditionally defined as a form of entertainment where men dress as women or women dress as men. They might lip sync to a popular song, perform a role on stage, or strut down a runway wearing the trendiest clothes fashion has to offer. But in recent years, drag has come to be understood as so much more. It's a way of life, a path for people across the world to express themselves and live their truth. Today, producer Trevor Young is going to walk us from the origins of drag to its most popular modern iteration, a reality TV show, which you've maybe heard of. RuPaul's Drag Race is now on VH1. Girl, let's do this. Your edges are officially snatched. Yeah! The queen is here, bow down bitches. Think you've seen fashion? I got it going on. Work. It's one of my main connections with young people who are college age, in their 20s. Like, we don't have a lot of other stuff to talk about. They're very different. They've always got their head in their phone. But the one thing we can totally connect on is, oh my God, Candy Muse, or Simone, or Gottmik. You know, what do you think? Blah, 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 blah. These are kids that are Ivy League colleges, or they're, you know, they're straight kids, or gay kids, or anything kids. There's just this connection that RuPaul has created between people. My name is Simon Doonan. I am an author and I think a lot of people know me from my work at Barney's where I was creative director and designed windows and ads and I've done a whole bunch of things. I'm old. Hello. Simon and I had agreed we'd do a one-hour interview about drag, but it became two hours because we couldn't stop talking about RuPaul's Drag Race. It turns out we're both huge fans. But the reality is that drag is so much more than just drag race. It's an art form, a means of expression that goes back hundreds, even thousands of years. It's a rich historical counterculture turned pop culture phenomenon that connects people across lines of age, race, gender, wealth, and time. For Simon, who grew up in the UK, it's always been a way of life. Well, I can't ever remember not being aware of drag. I mean, when I was a kid, drag was always on the TV. Many of the popular comedians in my childhood always wore drag. We had big, famous female impersonators like Danny LaRue. May I, may I call you Lady Cynthia? Anytime, dear. <laughs> We're over in a 4328. If mother answers, don't hang up. You're still on a good thing. <laughs> Dick Emery. Uh, excuse me, madam. Miss. Oh, miss. Tell me, do you have a favorite way of spending a bank holiday? Yes, I invite the man in from next door and we have a seance together. Stanley Baxter. Kinjas will have to be met. The kitchen staff are quite unsuitable. But, Aunt Shirley, we should spare Mrs. Bridges. She's a treasure. If she's a treasure, then I suggest you bury her in the garden. <laughs> 
So I think English people have a different relationship to drag than Americans, at least definitely back then, because we don't have that puritanical revulsion against it in the 1950s. It was so considered to be amusing and entertaining. I have pictures of me when I was like 10 in our backyard at home taken by my mother with my best friend Biddy who went on to become quite a famous drag queen in London in the 70s and we're both in drag. After spending decades surrounded by drag, Simon wrote and published a book in 2019 called Drag, The Complete Story. So I had to think, well, why would I do this book now? And then I thought, well, here's the deal. You know, in the 90s, drag was basically losing its mojo. People were speculating that now that it sort of lost a lot of its marginal status, it was just going to fizzle. And people were making those kind of speculations. And I quote people in my book saying that. But then fast forward to the second decade of the 21st century, and there's this huge explosive revolutionary interest in gender, drag, not just RuPaul's Drag Race, but the whole gender landscape became this massively complex, massively focal part of the culture. As Simon says, the 2010s saw the doors burst open for gender expression, and drag was the leader of this new revolution. That made it very appealing to a whole new generation of people. It just seemed like a perfect art form that not only, like, affirmed me in a queer and trans kind of way, but also just, like, allowed me to showcase all of my talents and didn't put any, like, restrictions or limitations on it. This is Taylor Alexander, an Atlanta-based drag performer. We'll be hearing from Taylor throughout this episode. Taylor began their drag journey in 2012. I started identifying as like non-binary in 2011 when I had that kind of language. It just made kind of more sense to me. It felt more comfortable. I never really felt comfortable identifying with the label of being a man. For some people, they do drag because they don't have a, a space or a place to explore gender or they have an inkling that they might not be the gender they were assigned at birth. And so drag can sometimes be a a way to explore that. You know, I know plenty of people who come into drag, you know, identifying as like cisgender men. And then when they start doing drag and they start doing shows and eventually, you know, they might come out as trans or non-binary. And I think that's beautiful. Well, that's the reason to do this book because there is this gender revolution going on. When I started this book, there was this iron firewall between drag and trans. It would have been a huge mistake to call a trans person a drag queen. There was this very different focus. And then during the two years that I wrote on the book, all the boundaries crumbled. It was truly revolutionary period where suddenly you had straight women identifying as drag queens. You had trans women identifying as drag queen identity. So it was all changing to the point where now, obviously you see on RuPaul's Drag Race, we have Got Mick, who's a trans man, who has a drag queen alter ego, if, if that's the right word for it. I thought this is a great time to revisit the history of drag and bring it right up to date into this new revolutionary, exploratory gender period that we're in now. Of course, it's taken a long time to get to this point. 
So let's go back to some of the earliest iterations of what we now call drag. Early Greek and Roman society was very masculine and very chest-beating and all about testosterone, basically. And then late Greek society became much more androgynous. And the same with Rome. You know, towards the end of the Roman Empire, when it began to crumble, then you saw a lot of this bacchanalian madness. Emperors like Nero, Caligula, wearing women's clothes. And, you know, some people say they're exaggerated, but I like to think that they're not, because they're so fun to read. And, and I thought, this is a great way of getting young people interested in history, to tell all these super bawdy, crazy stories about Nero, who also murdered his mother. You know, it's good to keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> I don't think they were particularly nice people by the sound of it. And there was another ancient culture to test out gender ambiguity, Egypt which is just the most marvelous, beautiful androgyny. If you look at Tutankhamun and, you know, that was a boy. But how beautiful, how extraordinary, how, how mesmerizing and timeless, like so amazing. Even today, it sort of takes your breath away to look at Egyptian art and the use of androgynous images, the androgynous clothing and the shifts that was a pretty amazingly rich culture. To the east, Japan used a form of drag with its kabuki theater. Developed in the Edo period, kabuki featured men, often performing as women on stage. The men would wear kimonos, don heavy pale white makeup, dangle fans, and assume the role of a geisha. The reasons for kabuki being male-only are vast and complicated, not limited to rampant sexism and a history of violence towards female performers. Like kabuki, Shakespearean drama in England also featured male actors playing female characters' roles. And like kabuki, it was not always for great reasons. In Shakespeare, the female roles were played by men because women weren't allowed to get on the stage physically. How now? Even so quickly may one catch the plague. Methinks I feel this youth's perfections with an invisible and subtle stealth to creep in at mine eyes. And then the boys who played female roles, Lady Macbeth, Cleopatra, I don't think they were treated really great. They didn't become superstars or anything. They're often forgotten, whereas the male actors are still remembered. And the boys who played women's roles, one minute they might be in a pair of tights having a sword fight, but then they would have to put on some gown for their female role, of which there are many. Shakespeare plays with this all the time because he does a lot of swapping, gender swapping, you know, in As You Like It. Your accent is something finer than you could purchase in so removed a dwelling. I have been told so of many, but indeed an old religious uncle of mine taught me to speak. I've heard him read many lectures against it, And I thank God I'm not a woman to be touched with so many giddy offenses. That's actually apparently where the word drag comes from because there were these laws in Elizabethan England that unless you were an aristocrat, you couldn't wear velvet, pearls, corsets, all the the finery of the aristocracy. It was illegal. So when the aristocracy wanted to dump off their old clothes, they would sell them to the 
Globe Theatre, where Shakespeare was producing his plays, they would refer to it as their drags. Not going to wear my little jerkin and my tights, I have to get my drags on. That's one theory about the origin of the word drag. Drag might have been most prevalent in the performing arts, but that wasn't its only purpose. Often, the stakes were much higher. There's instances of people cross-dressing to evade danger. That's a common theme. Throughout history, women have worn men's clothes in order to survive, to get a job. Even in Victorian England, you couldn't become a law clerk unless you were a boy. So a lot of girls would dress up in boys' clothes, sort of like a Yentl stories. What would you do if all you ever wanted in life was to study and, and it was forbidden? It isn't forbidden. But if it were? No, it isn't. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? Always hiding, afraid of being discovered. Yes, what's your secret? So women are are cross-dressed throughout history, but often with the goal being just pure survival, either physical, financial, whatever. The technical term for a woman who dresses as a man is a drag king. While the practice was used for survival reasons, it was also incredibly popular in the entertainment industry. You know, there's drag kings who became very famous, Hetty King and those women at the turn of the 20th century, they were making a lot of money. They were like huge Broadway stars. People love to watch a woman grab that male mansplaining power and and satirize it. We'll hear more about drag kings in a minute. For now, we land in the early 20th century, where drag exploded. Between the wars was a very fertile time for drag. That was the Harlem Renaissance. There was people like Gladys Bentley. There was this thing called the pansy craze in Harlem. It was a time of sort of um, loosening morals, more creative freedom and freedom of expression between the wars. And you saw that in London, Germany, obviously, the Weimar period. And, you know, if you've seen the movie Cabaret. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Someone like Gladys Bentley, you know, she thrived during the pansy craze. Became a big superstar. She had a big apartment on Park Avenue and a limo driver. And she was doing great. She would wear a a tux and she would flirt with the women in the audience. And she was this incredibly charismatic woman who I think somebody should make a film about her life. Then after the wars, particularly in America, there was this new emphasis on respectability and being conventional. And, you know, they started threatening her. It's illegal for women to wear men's clothes. And she wrote a terrible article in, I think it was Ebony Magazine. The headline was something like, I become a woman again. And she took female hormone and had married a guy and had to retreat from this freedoms of being a drag queen. And it's quite a sad story. That is very much a mirror of the times. Sadly, drag and trans performers continued to struggle for rights and for survival throughout the 20th century. In New York City, Being queer was illegal, as was selling alcohol at openly LGBTQ establishments. 
Then, in 1969, one event changed everything. On June 28th, police raided a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Cops broke into the building, arresting and assaulting the patrons. The local queer community was over it, and they were furious. Riots erupted in the neighborhood that would go on for days. Headed up by movement icons Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, the Stonewall Riots were some of the most significant displays of resistance and courage in the face of oppression. You know, when I was a kid, obviously for gay people of color and trans people of color, it's infinitely worse. But even for me, in my little factory town, gay bashing was a weekend hobby for the local skinheads. Homophobia was just part of the lingo, as was racism, as was stuff that is completely unacceptable these days. It was just normal. And I remember my dad saying to me when he sensed, you know, oh, I was starting to manifest. We never discussed it during our whole entire life, but he was getting a sense probably that I was gay. And he said to me, you know, those homosexuals, they get beaten up, they get blackmailed. Most of them end up in prison or in the mental hospital. And the horrible thing is he was actually correct. It was illegal to be homosexual until 1967 in England. And then even when that was overturned, the actual policing of gay people continued way into the 70s. And the gay bashing in many, some places never stopped. My family's from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland was very slow to make any changes. My sister's gay and my mom was terrified that the police would find out we were gay because it was illegal. It was on the books, you know, like, and this is into the 80s, into the 90s. I think still gay marriage isn't legal. And so imagine that, but you're trans and you're, you're breaking these other sacred taboos about gender. It's a million times worse. So I only cite my gay experience as a sort of, you know, the tip of the iceberg for what, for what the trans person might face. Simon knew a number of trans and drag performers throughout the 70s and 80s. I asked him how they got by. You have to have a good left hook. When I lived in Manchester in the early 70s, and it was a fantastic town with a very vibrant drag scene, but the drag queens were so tough. I remember being in a some horrible calf with these two drag queens that I knew called Ava and Charisse, and some woman said something to Ava that ticked her off, and Ava was big, and she picked up her tray with her food on and just threw it right at this woman, and then poor Charisse, later on was um, murdered by, you know, skinhead gang. And and I think that that kind of stuff continues in other parts of the world. I mean, there's countries where it's still illegal to be gay. There's countries in Africa where there's just, you wonder, when are they going to make some progress on this issue? Brazil, I think it seems very liberated and very gay positive, but then trans people are murdered in record numbers in Brazil so brave to throw on a frock and get out there and it's empowering and it's creative and it's brilliant but it's also hugely courageous. For some younger drag queens today, that history might get lost. The internet and media portray a much more glamorized version of drag than the one of generations past. But for Taylor Alexander, that history is everything. It's really informed 
how I got into drag, who was supporting me when I started doing drag. So knowing my history and knowing what had to happen before I came along to make the world what it is for queer and trans people is extremely important. I think that there are some people who just don't think about that, who don't take that into consideration. You know, on top of being like a performer, I'm also like a community organizer. And so as much as like, you know, I love throwing parties, I'm always thinking about like, how can I reflect different communities in this drag show? How can I tie this into like queer history? How can I tie this into like movements that are happening right now, which is like standing up for black trans lives and whatnot. It's like an ongoing process. And I think it's unfortunate that some performers just completely toss it to the side. I definitely agree. I don't want to go to every single bar and have like a sit down conversation about like Stonewall and Marsha P. Johnson. But every single person that comes to a show of mine or comes to a uh, an event that I'm producing, I would love to leave with like a certain kind of inspiration to learn more and to to know more and to grow. And so history and representation and just learning about who came before me and what's going to happen you know, after me is really important. Until the late 80s, drag culture had very little visibility outside of its few subversive pockets around the world. But then, one movie changed all of that. Jenny Livingston's 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. Get off the floor. Learn it and learn it well. That movie is sort of like the Citizen Kane of drag. I was working years ago in the mid-80s when all of my friends were dying. It was a terrible period, the AIDS epidemic. And Suzanne Barch is a very close friend of mine. She's a club queen in New York. And back then we were like so overwhelmed with death. You know, we're still young people and dealing with all this death. And she said, I'm going to do a charity event, but like one of these voguing balls. And I said, what are you talking about? And she dragged me up to Harlem and we went to a bunch of these voguing balls. And then we started having committee meetings for this event she wanted to do called the Love Ball. And one week, Chichi Valente, who's been very involved in this work, she said, I'm bringing this girl who's doing a documentary on the voguing scene in New York called Jenny Livingston. And she came and she showed us a little fragment, a preliminary fragment of this film. Paris is Burning is a very intimate look at what was called ball culture in the late 80s. It was often less than wealthy, gay and trans people of color who put on their own pageant shows using whatever clothes and props they had. Gay people, men, gather together under one roof and decide to have a competition amongst themselves. Balls. I went to a ball. I got a trophy, and now everybody wants to know me. In the film, you see the underground ball culture of New York City, centered around Harlem. And there, we meet a number of drag families, such as the Labejas and the Extravaganzas. The House of Extravaganza has done a lot. It's made me feel like I have a family. We're always together, we're always, if we're not together, we always speak on the phone. These adoptive families and these balls we're often these individuals' only source of belonging and safety. It's like crossing into the looking glass in Wonderland. You go in there and you feel, you feel 100% right. 
as a be being gay. And that's, and that's not it. what it's like in the world. It's not what it's like in the world. The boys, the extravaganzas, La Beja, Dupree, they were all over Manhattan, but there's one person had the imagination to pick up a camera and, and create that movie. And so hats off to her that she saw that because the impact of that movie is, is enduring and enduring and enduring. And I think it's given drag today a global language. Shantae, 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 Shantae. You know, throwing shade. Shade is, I don't tell you you're ugly, but I don't have to tell you because you know you're ugly. And that's shade. All the lingo that's in there, mopping. Mopping, you go into a store and just look. Mopping, stealing. A lot of people would recognize the expressions that were used in Karis' Morning because you hear them on CNN. Please don't don't try to uh, throw shade just because I'm making sure that uh, I'm not we're throwing shade. I'm just trying no, to you, state you are. facts. I, I, I simple fact. Right. You know, people say getting shady with me and throwing shade and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. That's the magic of this film. And then you hear it every time you watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Girl, the shade, the shade of it all. Constant references to that movie. Now, in the great tradition of Paris is burning. The library is about to be open. You know, that period is very poorly documented. Not many people photographed those balls, but we have that film, which is very, very touching. You know, a lot of those kids that are in the balls, they don't have two of nothing. Some of them don't even eat. They come to ball starving and they sleep on the pier or wherever. They don't have a home to go to, but they'll make, they'll go out and they'll steal something and get dressed up and come to a ball for that one night and live the fantasy. One of the things I find so amazing about it is when you look back at it, Jenny Livingston said, I realized I'd entered a world where these people knew exactly how to be themselves. The stakes were so low for those people in that film. They were so marginalized on so many levels that they had nothing to lose. What you see when you look at those people like Pepper La Beja and Dorian Corey and the legendary children and all of it is people who know how to be themselves without any filter. And they all seem strangely happy. You know, obviously they're on for the camera, but that's the thing that always strikes me. Like, as Pepe La Beja says, they don't have two of nothing, but they're always laughing and they make their own fun and they're not being driven bonkers by social media. Obviously they have their tiffs and their issues and they all were casualties of AIDS and drugs. And, you know, they didn't have easy, I'm not saying they had easy lives, but there's this weird, joy that radiates from people even though they have essentially nothing. I find that very touching, very inspiring. At the same time that voguing balls were taking place in small Manhattan clubs, androgyny and forms of drag were being commercialized in pop culture, most notably in the music industry. The counterculture Back then, people talked about unisex, unisex clothing, unisex hairdos. And it was around that time that glam rock erupted. Turn it on, leave it on. I want my MTV, you want your MTV, 
I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I worship David Bowie, Mark Boland, all those people. I used to go to those early concerts of theirs and wear satin, you know, and things I couldn't afford to buy from Mr. Freedom, which was the big glam rock store I used to make myself. It was a totally androgynous look. Boys wore big platform shoes and uh, heels, which was great for me because I'm only five foot four, so it was fabulous. It was a period where androgyny became a big thing and it, and it surges in and out of pop music. I mean, Jimi Hendrix is obviously very androgynous, wearing flowers and velvet, Mick Jagger. That was a 60s thing too. And then resurfaced with glam rock in a more theatrical show, busy way with satin and stars and stuff like that. And then loads of makeup, obviously, like <laughs> Bowie. I find that I'm a, a person who can take on the guises of, of different people that I meet. I can switch accents in seconds of meeting somebody and I can adopt their accent. I've always found that I collect. I'm a collector. I have a hodgepodge philosophy, which really is very minimal. You seem like somebody maybe who would love glam rock. Are you a glam rock person? Bowie's probably my favorite musician of all time. Well, today you're looking very hunky-dory. Thank you. Yes, I get that a lot. <laughs> he was so... He wasn't male, he wasn't female. He was genuinely very androgynous. Like, you actually stopped thinking about anatomical stuff with him. He was just this beautiful extraterrestrial of androgyny. For gay people of my generation, it was very powerful because back then you thought, oh, if you're gay, you just end up being some alcoholic, Judy Garland-loving person who's full of self-loathing and living in the shadows. And suddenly, oh my God, here's this way to be gay that's hip and groovy and tied into the culture. And, and so it was very significant for my generation. I think he was the most sophisticated take on androgyny, other than maybe Grace Jones. How do you view yourself? I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> I have many different moods. I think like everyone else, I, I'm very much human. Very much so. Grace Jones is incredibly beautiful, visual take of androgyny. It's also very unforgettable. Then at other times it became like the New York Dolls. You know, they were doing a parody of almost like slapping the makeup on and, you know, hasty kind of ratchet drag, which was sort of just designed to be provocative. And then we move into the 80s with hair metal. You know, hair metal was pure drag. It was like guys dressing in their mother's aerobics clothes and then getting their hair done like Joan Cusack in Working Girl. It was brilliant and uh, very funny. You know, aggressively heterosexual, but then dressed like a um, New Jersey housewife, basically. No offense to New Jersey housewives. But when the 90s hit, drag became synonymous with one name and one name only. RuPaul. You better shoot, honey, it's RuPaul! The Pyramid Club was the focus of drag when I came to New York in the early 80s. And... That is where drag kind of started to become hip. I mean, a lot of people stood out, but there was one person who was just different. And that was RuPaul, because RuPaul was always turned out. Never sloppy, it was never hag drag. You know, it was always turned out. And 
I'm not at all surprised that he has gotten where he's gotten because there was always this aura around him of success and he used to say it. He always envisaged his own success. He knew he kind of would be something. He would amount to something. When you become the image of your own imagination, it's the most powerful thing you could ever do, you know, because ain't no stopping, you know. You know, in my mind's eye, I've always been a superstar, you know, right. and nobody couldn't tell me no different, you right. know what I mean? Right. So if you believe it, then they'll believe it, they'll buy it. You hear that from a lot of people. Madonna also has that. I think I've always had a lot of confidence in myself. What are your dreams? What's left? Mm, to rule the world. <laughs> like, nothing was going to get in their way. It was going to happen. And there's this weird kind of certainty that most of us don't have. But certain people, and RuPaul's one of them, always had that vision of herself and, and has fulfilled it. RuPaul Charles was born in California but really kicked off his drag career in Atlanta, Georgia in the 1980s. He then went on to New York City, where he exploded onto the scene, appearing on TV with The RuPaul Show in 1996. And recording hit songs like You Better Work, and a shade shady. Finally, in 2009, RuPaul launched the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race. A show where queens would compete to be the next drag superstar. So goes the show's popular slogan. These queens will break the mold by spreading positivity and unity to become America's next drag superstar. Ain't nobody gonna snatch this away from me. The show would not only bring drag into the mainstream, but inspire a whole new generation of drag performers, including Taylor Alexander. Though they have some mixed feelings about RuPaul. It's weird because RuPaul started doing drag here in Atlanta, and when she first started doing drag, which is like my favorite era of RuPaul, she was, you know, very into like androgyny. She used to wear like, you know, football shields and like shoulder pads, like mohawks, and like also used to do like music. She was in a band called Wee Wee Pole that used to perform right along here on Ponce. And so it's funny that, you know, she was dabbling in androgyny and messing with gender and messing with even like the ideas of drag, because even then there were still like, you know, these notions that, you know, drag is quote unquote to be a female illusionist. And so you have to be padded and have this very kind of like quaffed and perfected, you know, look. And here comes RuPaul just like completely messing with that. But then you see her slowly transform over the years into this glamazon, as she calls it, and kind of completely forget the very queer, the very like androgynous route that she began with. And I think that's because of her personal journey with being like the world's most like famous drag queen. What Taylor is referring to is that throughout the runtime of Drag Race, RuPaul has been slow to accept trans performers into the ranks, instead preferring cis gay men exclusively. However, the show itself has progressed over its decade-plus time on the air, now featuring a number of trans men and women. Most of all, the show has provided a platform for drag performers of all types to expand their brand and show their stuff. The show also allows for many intimate and tender moments with many of these queens. My dad passed in October 2013, 
And it's still so fresh to me. We didn't see eye to eye at first, but we ended up having the best relationship. He came to my pageants and we was always talking. Then he told me, you need to go on RuPaul's Drag Race. So by him passing, it was like, yeah, it's time. I want to do it for my dad. Wow, it's an amazing story. And you've done so well. I am so proud of you. Thank you. I love watching you just work through it and make it happen. I love how if there's some drag queen who's struggling a bit, and they're in a saboteur, it's pushing them in the wrong direction, and RuPaul has that very paternal, maternal conversation with them about being your own best pal and get your act together. You deserve to have good things happen to you. And I think that's a very important message because I don't think drag queens historically thought that they deserve to have good things happen to them. The whole society was telling them the opposite. Just like my dad telling me, well, gay people, they all get blackmailed and they all end up in prison or depressed or whatever. RuPaul has just annihilated all that. These kids know how to make money. They know how to take care of themselves. They're great role models for like survival because survival's really important, how to get a job, how to keep a job. And RuPaul has those basically solid working class beliefs that are married with this amazing free-flowing creativity. To be successful at Drag Race, usually you have to do two things. You have to look good, and you have to be funny. Miss Ben de la Creme, after seeing you in drag, I realize now why Seattle has a high suicide rate. <laughs> it used to be quite separate, you know, glamour drag and comedy drag, especially in my childhood. Like, someone like Cochinelle, you know, a showgirl from the Folie Berger, was, it was about glamour. And then the straight guys, like Benny Hill, Dick Emery, Monty Python. Well, there's egg and bacon, uh, egg, sausage and bacon, egg and spam, egg, bacon and spam, <laughs> egg, bacon, sausage and spam. They were wearing drag and, and they basically looked hideous. You know, it was a kind of misogynistic take on womanhood. So they were kind of separate in many ways. And what you see now is the real success comes when people combine them. And RuPaul was one of the first people to do that. She's very funny. She's very witty. As the queen of salsa, you lacked spice. She wants to look elegant and beautiful and, and megastar but she's funny as well. So I think that's a fairly recent thing, a brilliant combination of the two. They deride people on RuPaul's Drag Race for being, too, oh, she's too much of a pageant queen. So just being an Airte drawing is not enough. You have to, <laughs> you have, to have some humanity because not everybody wants to lose themselves in the aesthetic vision, but everybody wants to have a good laugh. When you're watching RuPaul's Drag Race, don't you find yourself just, I think, I've been sitting here for 45 minutes with the biggest grin on my face. Like, it's the most life-affirming show. And again, it's like spreading. you cry a bit, but mostly you just laugh and you think, oh my God, this is insane. It's so fun. As of this episode's airing, there have been 13 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, 
six seasons of Drag Race All-Stars, two seasons of Drag Race UK, and spin-offs in countries like Australia, Canada, Holland, Spain, and Thailand. Drag has officially become a global commercial empire. And it's now a glitzy business that's not always reflective of the more DIY drag culture you might expect to find in your local gay bars. I asked Taylor Alexander what they think of Drag Race and if they'd ever do it. Have I considered Drag Race? Yes, because I would love to be able to do drag as like my full-time gig and that's just it. Which some people are able to do in the city, you know, up until the pandemic, half of my income was from doing shows and doing drag. So I'm happy to get back to that soon. But would I ever do Drag Race? Just because of the kind of like legal contractual obligations of being on Drag Race. Like recently there was this whole like expose about the, the latest season's contract. Provision A says the producer has the irrevocable option to require you to appear as a participant in one cycle of series episodes. The next provision grants the producer the additional, exclusive, and irrevocable options to have you appear as a participant in five additional seasons, which, by the way, could be cycles of this series, RuPaul's Drag Race or RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. And the next part signs away your rights to all of the materials in the show, including the casting tape that you created and submitted to them. Basically, when signing this form, you're now legally obligated to participate in up to six seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race if chosen to do so. They could potentially own you basically from like four to 20 years. They could negotiate how much you get paid, what you post on social media, what kind of merch. And it's just like, I don't need that. As much as I would love like a national platform to showcase my artistry and be able to like tour and whatever off of drag, it's just like being tied to a brand that I have no control over. It's just scary and also so I just think for me I'm best doing what I do here in the city of Atlanta I really see myself being here for decades and kind of creating my own legacy in terms of like drag race and kind of like how it informed me I'm the kind of person that's always critiquing drag race but I will watch every single episode probably like multiple times just because you know it's the only like big mainstream kind of representation of drag there's like other smaller drag showcases on like a bigger platform but i think for me i would much rather not see people kind of competing but more so just like highlighting the amazing drag communities that we have here in the country like one of my goals eventually is to like do my own show where i travel from like city to city and like highlight one drag show and show like their whole process of like getting into drag and why they do drag and what drag does for their communities and you know, I've I've done shows in like places like, you know, Spartansburg, South Carolina, or like Durham, North Carolina, which has an amazing queer community that's way smaller than Atlanta, but the love and the affection and the intent in creating those spaces, especially for more marginalized folks in like rural, more conservative areas, I think that needs to be highlighted. As much as I love like the pageantry and the glitz and the glam of drag race, I also love like the true grit of like regular, regular, everyday drag performers. What Taylor is getting at is a question I've also thought to myself. Is drag becoming too big, too commercial? People used to say that about drag in the 90s, you know, so look where we are now. People always say that, oh, they said it about the counterculture, about punk, about everything. Oh, it's going to become blah, 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 diluted, commercialized. I never worry about that because people are so surprising and protean and a lot of drag queens may become very household names or 
you know, integrated into the culture, but there's always going to be radical ones who find new ways to be assaultive and crazy and fun and provocative. It's just the nature of the beast. There's always going to be new ways of looking at things like this new obsession with meticulous artistry that's become such a signature part of drag now. There'll be something after that that comes along, keeps it alive because it's this great form of satire, you know, and satire is sort of getting lost a bit in our culture, good satire, but drag queens, no, they're still good at satirizing masculinity, femininity, stupidity, political issues. They amp it up every season that show they find new ways to reinvent the medium and make it more extraordinary because they are very imaginative, creative people. So it's actually something I don't worry about. All I see is like magical creativity and enough to go around and easily enough to propel this movement into new, unforeseen, extraordinary, apocalyptic craziness. I can't wait. Not to quote RuPaul, but to quote RuPaul, drag will always be punk. I don't think that she fully believes in that and practices that on her show, but drag will always be punk and DIY. It will always be messy. It will always be not the nicest, clean-cut, you know, one-and-a-half-hour kind of production that RuPaul's Drag Race is. Drag will always be for the people, by the people, and not as, like, nice and polished. And I think that's beautiful. Do I think that the audiences who engage in drag have changed and will change in the future? Absolutely. Like, even, like, the first shows in my career in, like, 2012, 2013, those audiences were, you know, mainly, like, queer and trans people. But over the years, more and more, like, cisgender, heterosexual people are just, like, coming to shows. I think drag will always be kind of, like, nitty-gritty. If Drag Race, you know, wants to continue and change and morph and be a long-running staple on American television, I think it's going to have to go back to a certain kind of DIY element. I feel like Drag Race has really changed since season nine. I feel like season nine is where we saw kind of more like polished, ready for TV, I'm trying to get an Emmy Award nomination kind of producing. You know, even like season three, season four, those were incredibly like DIY. There were like so many challenges where they had to make their own outfits. And, you know, it was so much of it was based more on like performance and not so much like story producing. But I really feel like the past few seasons have just gone straight into that kind of like, all right, this is a, a television reality show and not so much like a drag competition show. So it'll be interesting to see how drag race transforms over the next few seasons, over the next few years. But I think that the drag, regardless of drag race, has always been DIY, has always been gritty, has always been punk. And I hope that it gets more punk. I would love to see as like, you know, mainstream notoriety around drag goes up that like the the kind of weirdness and quirkiness of drag just gets even more and more visible. So we've heard what drag was during the Roman Empire, and we've heard what drag is today. So what's the common thread that ties all of these vast interpretations of the art form together? Why does drag exist in our world, in our culture? Well, here's Simon. I feel like drag is a visual thing. In fact, there was this theory back in the 90s that why are men drawn to the idea of cross-dressing or transvestism or, you know, the millions of words that have been used over the years? Why are men drawn to that? And there was this theory that for the 20th century, during the 20th century, women 
owned what was known as the visual realm. So there is no male equivalent to Marilyn Monroe. There is no male equivalent to Jean Harlow. There is no Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell. You know, they, they have this incredible power that just purely comes from, if they show up, there's this frisson, this magical thing around women. They continue to own the visual realm. That's why you have phenomenons like Golden Age of Hollywood, Lady Gaga, all of it. And then men wearing women's clothes was seen back then as being sort of a power grab, a very complex power grab, because it was like, I want to have that. I want to own the visual realm. I want to walk into a restaurant. Everyone's looking at me. I'm Liz Taylor. I'm Marilyn Monroe. I'm Linda Evangelista. Men used to record their motivations to wear women's clothes as being this incredible sense of freedom. Like I'm no longer the breadwinner. The male burden is lifted and I get to own this visual realm that women own. I think it remains to be true. I mean, I'm a gay man, but I love to look at femaleness, even if it's a drag queen. You could never build a show around a bunch of people dressing up as lumberjacks and road work. I don't know, maybe it might be fun, but never say never. But there's something about the Medusa-like power and you see on RuPaul's Drag Race very clearly when they walk into the workroom at the beginning, they seem very young, very ingenue, these young boys. And then suddenly they're two foot taller. The hair is out to here. Drag queens are very intimidating. That's part of the deal. They grab the power center in a room and people love it. Taylor Alexander has a different perspective. I think that Drag has always been a way for people to not only entertain or perform for people, but to also like navigate spaces where if they were out of drag, they probably wouldn't be as accepted, which is sad to say. There's a history in queer community of drag performers often also being activists or also being, you know, marginalized in some capacity. You know, when we think about like historical figures, we think about, you know, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Miss Major, so many other like icons who, on top of being, you know, trans women and sometimes sex workers, were also drag reformers. And so I think sometimes the history is muddled because language changes so much, where people are like, oh, well, she was a drag queen, she wasn't a trans woman. Because, you know, transgender, the term that we use all the time nowadays, really didn't come into like public conversation until like the late 90s and really didn't pop off like on the internet until like, you know, the mid 2000s, early 2010s. And so sometimes our history gets forgotten or gets kind of muddled or it's hard to decipher because it's hard to translate actions and identities, you know, of 40, 50 years ago to like today, where like, I feel like every single month there's a new way to identify, which I think is beautiful. But it also should harken back to our past to understand that drag and gender has always meshed with each other and have always been inside of like this weird coexistence. I think that drag and gender both play into the idea that nothing is clean cut, nothing is 100% as it may seem. I think that's a beautiful thing that I think people are really starting to understand now. I think sometimes, especially with the onslaught of RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, especially those outside the community, but even inside the LGBTQ community are informed by that. So they're thinking trans people can't do drag. They're thinking trans people shouldn't be represented. 
And now we have this public conversation where that's completely incorrect and has never been historically accurate. And so I, I think, especially with this last season of Drag Race, they're really trying to correct their previous hiccups and kind of like explaining to the public, both the queer public and the kind of like cisgender heterosexual public, that drag and being trans or having a trans identity can coexist, and they always have been. And anybody who tells you otherwise is just, you know, completely, like, uneducated. Just to end on a fun note, here's a supercut of some of the best catchphrases coined by queens from Drag Race. Miss Vanjie! Miss Vanjie! Miss Vanjie! Hi. Oh, honey. All this shade, All honey. This shade. Shade comes from reading. Yes, honey. mama boots the house down for your nerves work. Um, oh, girl! Girl, look how orange you fing look, girl. I'm joking. Oh, now nah, I'm not joking. Let it go. Tired ass showgirl. Showgirl, at least I am a showgirl. Go back to Party City where you belong. Back rolls. Hallelujah! And I, oh! Party. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Trevor Young and produced with Max and Alex Williams. Simon Doonan is the author of Drag, The Complete Story, available wherever books are found. And follow Taylor Alexander on Instagram at T-A-Y-L-O-R-A-L-X-N-D-R to keep up with all their events, including Southern Fried Queer Pride, which works to support trans and queer people all across the Southeast. For more on everything you heard here, visit our website, ephemeral.show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.